0: So I wonder if you had an incurable disease, but you heard one day that somebody had finally found a cure, and you went to see them, but what they asked you to do not only sounded ridiculous, it was a little bit offensive, and it was very humiliating, but you knew that it would cure you. Would you do it? Well, we meet a man this morning in 2 Kings chapter 5 who faced exactly that predicament. And these events here of a man called Naaman are one of the best, clearest Old Testament presentations of the gospel that you will ever find. And this is a really powerful section of scripture. And so, what I want to do this morning as we kick this off is I don't always do this, but I want to go ahead and read the entire account. And then we'll go back and go through it. I just want us to kind of get the whole picture of this this morning. We'll read, I think it's the first 14 verses. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man in his master's sight and honorable, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians had gone out on raids and had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his master, the the king, what the girl from the land of Israel had said. Then the king of Assyria said, go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God? to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Verse 8, Now when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent a message to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots, And stood at the door of Elisha's house, and Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was furious, and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me, and stand, and call upon the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place, and cure the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and said to him, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you have not done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. History shows us that Syria, and primarily Damascus, which is mentioned here in verse 12, was a very luxurious place to live. As that verse mentioned, there were two rivers flowing from the mountains nearby down into Syria, into uh, Damascus specifically, and on out into the surrounding areas. And they created this beautiful landscape filled with gorgeous trees and lush green countryside. I actually brought some photos of those two rivers for you to see there. You can see it on the top left and bottom right. Those are the two rivers. And then two current day uh, photos as well of the city of Damascus see some cars in one of them, and those two rivers flow into the city, beautiful waters, and they bring life and vitality with them. That's exactly what Naaman was referring to. And Naaman lived there in that oasis, you could call it. It was sort of the five-star resort of, of that area, which most of it, as you know, is surrounded by dry, rugged, dangerous mountains and deserts. But Naaman lived there surrounded by beauty and wealth and luxury. It was the kind of place that anybody would wish they could live. And he not only lived there, but Naaman occupied a position at, at the top of the rung of all this opulence and status and leisure. He lived a life that most people would envy. I'm sure when people saw Naaman on the six o'clock news or saw him riding down the street in his chariot. They knew who he was the commander of the army of Syria. He was the top guy, five-star general. They must have looked at him and thought, wow, what a life. What a life. Do I envy that guy? He not only enjoyed the beauty and luxury of living where he did, but these verses also show us that he was a very wealthy man. I'm skipping ahead a bit here, but we'll come back. He set out on this journey, and he casually took with him 750 pounds of silver and 150 pounds of gold, all carried by a fleet of stretched chariots and horses. Now, in today's money, what he took with him would be worth right around $4 million. He just casually put it onto his chariots and took it with him, as a gift for being healed. Verse 1 is is a great verse to read. It builds, and it builds to a sort of crescendo as it describes the status of this man, Naaman. I mean, look at it. Commander of the army of the king of Syria. A great man, an honorable man. He was a victorious commander. He was a mighty man of valor. It sounds like Naaman had it all. But then you get to the end of verse 1. And that last phrase suddenly brings everything crashing down, but he was a leper. Naaman had a long, impressive resume. He had a grand list of accomplishments. He had an enviable place of prominence in society, but he had leprosy. And that one statement brings to nothing everything that was just said about him. Because it didn't matter who you were, if you discovered in that day that you had leprosy, you were about to be thrown out of society and forced to live as an outcast. As Naaman woke up one morning, noticed a spot on his skin, thought, huh, that's strange. It wasn't there yesterday, but probably no big deal. And then over time, the spots grew larger and larger, and suddenly his status and his prominence and his wealth and all his accomplishments were put into a whole new perspective. The same thing happens to us. We're going along life on our merry way, building our kingdom. Everything is fine until we get that test result from the doctor, until we unexpectedly lose a loved one in a tragedy, until we're brought face to face with the frailty of life And when that happens, our values and our priorities change in an instant. Suddenly, the things that meant the most to us yesterday are practically worthless to us today. And the things that we see we've spent the least amount of time on suddenly bring waves of regret because we've ignored the things that really matter. And so Naaman begins searching for a cure, and no doubt he had all the resources available to get all the best medical care in the city and in any surrounding areas, but none of that mattered now because he had a disease for which there was no cure. All his money, all his influence, his status, his power would have gotten him anything he wanted, but it could not get him the one thing he needed. And then one day, the answer to his search comes from a very unexpected source. There was the young servant girl that we read about working in his house, attending to Naaman's wife. This little Jewish girl had been taken captive in one of the raids that Syria carried out against Israel. We don't know how it happened. We don't know about her family, but you can just try to imagine being in this little girl's shoes. We don't know how old she was. It says a young girl, a little girl. Old enough to serve and carry out commands, but certainly not an old girl. Just imagine one day, perhaps, playing in front of her house, and she hears the thunder of horses' hooves, hundreds of them. The ground begins to shake, and she looks up and sees the dust cloud. Her heart begins to race, and suddenly their town is overwhelmed with enemy soldiers, and they're killing and burning. And she feels arms reach down and grab her and pull her up and take her off into this strange land. She's there all alone. Her parents must have been frantic, I can't imagine. I remember one time years ago when our kids were very little, we went with, uh, I don't know, four or five other families to uh, Disney World. Uh, We spent our retirement there. If you've ever been to Disney World, you know, it takes that just to get in the gate, (laughs) never mind buy an ice cream or a drink. But it was uh, nighttime. We went to see the night parade of lights, whatever it is, and it was, the people were packed in like sardines up to the curb of the streets. And suddenly one of our friends uh, began to scream, began to scream, like not a normal scream, Her little girl, who had just a moment before been standing right by her side, was nowhere to be seen. And I have never in my life seen panic on on anyone's face like I saw on Donna's face. And she told all of us, and we all began to look, we all raced through the crowd searching and calling her name and the parade is coming by and there's music and lights and it's, it's so loud you can barely hear yourself. And we searched through the crowd, and, and about 20, 25 yards down, there she stood on the curb, watching the parade as happy as she could be. She had just sort of drifted off looking for something, and when Donna saw her, she scooped her up in her arms and was, you know, did that angry, happy thing that moms do when they lose you. <laughs> this little girl had been ripped out of her life and carried off to a foreign land. To live among people who hated her and her religion. And there she was serving in the house. And she represented the exact opposite of all the luxury and prominence that surrounded her. She was forced to live now as a slave. And yet remarkably, and there's a whole message in this. And I think next week I may tie a little bit of this into the second half of this story. But remarkably, we still see her faith in God shining through. This little girl, intimidated by the people she's surrounded by. They hate her. They hate her God. And yet when she has an opportunity to speak up and point someone to the God of Israel, she speaks up. Wow. Boy, her parents must have done some job raising her. And I think if readers were asked to identify the most important person or people in this story, I I think probably no one would even think to choose this little servant girl. And yet she is the one God uses to point a lost and dying man to healing, both physically and spiritually. It was her. Can I just say this quickly? There are no unimportant places in the kingdom of God. I think the modern church has brainwashed people into believing that the person who stands up here is the most important person in the church. And I'm telling you, nothing could be further from the truth. I think when we get to heaven and the Lord passes out rewards to his faithful servants, I think we are going to be stunned at the people who rack up piles of crowns. And we go, them? Really? Really? I thought it'd be Phil Pike. He's the guy running his mouth every week up there. No, no, it usually doesn't work that way. God chose to bring about this miracle through an unnamed little servant girl who lived in the shadows, completely overlooked by everyone. But, you know, this shouldn't surprise us. How did Jesus make his entrance into the world? Through a queen in a castle? No. Through a poor, unknown girl living in a town that everyone made fun of. You see, mankind has always looked in the wrong places for God. And they still are. Where was the first place the wise men went to in their search for the newborn Messiah? To the palace. Because, duh, everybody knows kings are born in palaces. Little did they know that God works in far more humble ways. The king they were looking for wasn't lying in a golden crib in the palace, but in a dirty feeding trough surrounded by the smell of manure. Toward the end of his life, the people were waiting for him to ride into Jerusalem triumphantly on a huge white stallion. But how did Jesus come instead? He came lowly, riding on a donkey. A donkey? Even his disciples at that point were looking at each other, going, is this for real? They expected him to be lifted up on a throne, but instead he was lifted up on a cross to die. Why? Because that's how God does things. You know, we still today, we make the mistake of always looking for the big things, the big flashy, noisy events with the big name people Meanwhile, God may be preparing his greatest work in the heart of a homeless person sleeping behind a dumpster just outside. Maybe you've gotten discouraged lately because you feel like a nobody in the kingdom of God. Satan has convinced you that your place doesn't matter. But let me assure you, your place does matter to God. It does. Because he delights in putting his treasure in old clay pots So that when all is said and done, he'll receive the glory instead of us. So you carry on and be faithful where you are. You hear me? Don't get discouraged. Don't think, well, I'm not having any impact on anybody. And don't use me as a measurement. God's just called me to this role. And frankly, I've told you, I'd rather not be up here. I'm still embarrassed and feel awkward being in front of a room full of people and speaking, especially opening God's word. I feel the weight of that every Sunday. But you know, you... In most churches, people look at the the senior pastor, you know, the big guy. Wow, God's using him, but God can't use me. Listen, if you're saved, if you've been transformed by the Holy Spirit, he has gifted you in certain ways that he has never and never will gift me. And you have a place in his kingdom. Every part of the body matters. Every part you carry on. You be faithful. You're serving in the shadows, behind the scenes. No one knows your name. I know that's hard, but be faithful there. God is using you in ways that you cannot see yet. Well, as we've seen, Naaman was a man of great power and influence. I mean, he, he operated and moved about in the upper echelons of society. And one thing is for sure, when he needed advice on a serious matter, he certainly didn't go to his servants to get it. And so, For Naaman to listen to the advice of this Jewish servant girl shows just how desperate he was for a cure. But still, he kind of got it wrong. He's convinced that if anything is going to get done, it'll have to come from the top. So he goes to the king of Syria, his boss. He tells him this news. And the king says, that's fine. Go and I'll send a letter with you. All you have to do is show this letter to the king of Israel and it'll all be taken care of. They're off track already. Now, oh, if it's going to be done, it's going to be done through powerful, influential people. Verse 6 shows us the content of the letter. It said, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman name my servant that you may cure him of leprosy. Who said the king of Israel could cure anybody? They're searching in the wrong place. So they kind of listened to what the servant girl said, but really not so much. So he goes to the king of Israel, and the king, gets angry and thinks that the guy's just trying to pick a fight with him, and so his attempt to be healed by the king got him nowhere, and he was finally redirected to the prophet Elisha's house. Now, we must keep this in mind. Naaman, Naaman was a man who was used to opening doors simply by his status and his prominence. He was used to impressing people with his wealth. He was used to throwing his wealth around and getting whatever he wanted. But he was about to find out that his wealth and importance meant nothing in God's economy. Verse 9 again. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house, and I love verse 10, and Elisha sent a messenger to him. (laughs) That was a slap in the face, especially in that culture. Naaman rolls up to Elisha's house in his fleet of limousines, fancy clothes, tons of money, and he thinks, boy, surely this will impress Elisha, and and I'll get the royal treatment I'm accustomed to, but instead, man, Elisha doesn't even get out of his recliner. He doesn't even pause the TV. He's just, he calls Gehazi and says, hey, go give him a message. The door opens and out steps the servant to talk to this great man, Naaman. Boy, I tell you what, Naaman is highly offended by this. His pride and his ego are hurt. The servant says to him in the last part of verse 10, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. And boy, I tell you, this really took Naaman down a couple of notches. He was not expecting this at all. Verse 11, he was furious, went away saying, behold, I thought he would surely come out to me or it could be rendered come out to a man like me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leprosy. He's highly offended because he was expecting a personal appearance from Elisha himself. And he was expecting some kind of big show, you know, that Elisha would come out like, like their pagan magicians would do and put on some kind of performance and wave his hands about and say some magic words. That's what he was envisioning. And to add insult to injury, he's told by a servant to go wash himself in the muddy Jordan River. Nobody wants to do that because verse 12 again says, Are not the the two rivers there in Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? I mean, if you're going to tell me to do this, at least tell me to go wash in one of those. They're a lot cleaner than the Jordan. And he turned away in a rage. He's thinking, You expect me? You expect me? To walk down into the Jordan River and get all filthy and muddy? Do you know who I am? I wonder if he turned to his servants and said, would somebody tell him who he's talking to? I'm the commander of the army of Syria, a great man, an honorable man, with a string of victories to my name. Never imagined, he never imagined that he would be asked to do something so undignified and humiliating. He was offended at the very idea. He left thinking there, there must be a better solution. There must at least be a solution that would allow me to retain my dignity. See, he was so determined to be healed on his own terms that he, and I want you to notice this, he would rather keep his leprosy than to humble himself and do what God asked him to do. I find that astounding. It shows what pride can do to a person. But God graciously extends another invitation to Naaman. You know, if I was God, man, oh man, it's just a good thing I'm not. If I was God, I would have said, tough bananas, pal. You missed your chance. God is so gracious, isn't he? He's so long-suffering. So patient with us, with our stupidity and our ignorance. And so, in a sense, God, if I say this respectfully, God goes after Naaman a second time. He runs after him. God ever come after you? You ever drift off and wander off into places that you, you think, man, what am I doing here? What in the world am I doing here? And, and you, you hear a whisper, and it's God saying, come on, come on back. Come on. And so, God has to humble Haman. He, Naaman, he's, he's once again going to use not kings or governors or military generals, but servants to humble Naaman, verse 13. And his servants came to him and said, my father, or it's just a term of respect, master, they're saying, if, if the prophet had told you to go and do some huge, complex, great, difficult thing, wouldn't you have done it? And Naaman goes, well, yeah. I I guess I would have. And they say, well, then why not do this simple thing that he's asked you to do, to just go wash and be clean? And in that moment, conviction struck Naaman's heart, and he was finally willing to humble himself. Verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. I wonder, I've always wondered since I was a kid, I've always wondered what Naaman was thinking after coming up each time. You know? One. Two. Three. Four. I mean, that's a lot. Five. Six. You think on the sixth one he thought, this is ridiculous. What am I doing? And look at me, the great military general down here in the dirty water, dipping myself like a moron. What, what am I thinking? You think on number six, he just about to throw it, throw it in, give it up? You see, if he had only dipped six times, he would have left a leper. Because it said he had to do it according to the word of the Lord through Elisha. So often in our life, we hear God's commands, and they're just as clear as they can be. It's like counting to seven. It's just easy, it's just clear. And we go, eh, I think I'll do five, maybe six. But seven, that's ridiculous. I'm not gonna gonna go through all that. God surely can't mean what he says. God surely doesn't expect me to give up this thing in my life in order to please him and bring him glory. Surely not. So I'll just give up this other thing instead. And I'll kind of barter with God to hang on to my old ways over here. God can't mean what he says. Are there any areas of your life where you've only dipped six times? And you know there's that one other thing that God is asking you to do to bring him glory through your life. And you just go, no, I'm not going to do it. I wonder what it's going to take to humble you, to bring you to the point where Naaman got down out of his beautiful chariot and walked down that bank down to the muddy waters of the Jordan and actually stepped into the water with everyone watching and humbled himself in order to be clean. Well, we'll kind of leave Naaman in the water today. We'll pick up there next week, but I want to I just stop right here as we wind this up and consider some personal application. I mean, you know, great event from history, wonderful, thanks for sharing, but what does all this mean to us? The Bible itself tells us that it is there for our instruction, for our correction. Well, this particular event in history is relevant to all of us, and we must not miss this we must not miss the bigger picture here. As I've told you before, and I don't have time to go through all this again, but as we're making our way through the Bible, I've told you many times, and again, I kid you not, it was uh, Friday night, I think, I heard again from someone who said, I just can't stand the Old Testament. I just tried to encourage her, hey, you're, you're missing a lot. You're missing a lot. The Bible is made up of 66 separate books written by 40 authors over a period of about 1,500 years from different countries, different cultures, different religions, different professions. And yet when the books are brought together, it makes one continuous story from beginning to end. There's only one theme through the whole Bible, and it's the theme of God's relationship with man and how man has destroyed that relationship and God has if I can say this, gone to the ends of the earth to try to repair that relationship. The whole Bible is about the gospel. The whole Bible points to Jesus Christ. All of it. We must not miss that here in this story because as we look at Naaman trying to fix his problem his own way, what we're seeing is humanity trying to fix its problem its own way. Naaman is an example of all lost mankind. The world has tried and tried and tried to cure itself of its leprosy for generations. Throughout the Old Testament, leprosy is used as a picture of sin. And the world got together and said, hey, we've got the solution. We'll form this organization called the United Nations. And in our charter, it will say that our objective is to bring peace to the world. How's that working out? And then others said, no, what we need is we need to improve education and housing and health care. That'll fix the problem. Others said, no, uh, what we need is more tolerance and acceptance and inclusivity. And they've done all that and a lot more. And yet we've got more murder, more rape, more greed, more division, more hatred than ever before. Why? Because the world is trying to cure its leprosy its own way. And it cannot do it. You could form a million organizations to fix the problems in the world. They will never be fixed that way. Never. We keep trying to fix our problem without God, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. But, folks, that's not true just on a global scale. That's true on an individual scale as well. Naaman is a picture of all of us in our unsaved condition consumed with ourselves, consumed with our achievements, convinced that we can make it on our own. Until one day, we look down and we see that we're stained with sin. Oh, and we all know it too, by the way. There are people who will tell you they're not a sinner, but when they, they lie alone in the darkness at night, their conscience is talking to them. Because Romans 1 says it is. And we see, at some point in our journey, we, we see that we're stained with sin. But we think, uh, not to worry, I'm clever enough and resourceful enough to find a solution to this on my own. So what do we do? We start going to church. We maybe drop some money in the box. We promise to be a better person. We promise to quit smoking and drinking and doing drugs and sleeping around. And, and we're really committed to this, boy, we're going to work hard at being a good person Because that's how people try to fix their leprosy on their own. And yet the guilt of sin still haunts our conscience. Like Lady Macbeth trying frantically to scrub the bloodstains off her hands from the man that she has just killed. And she tries over and over and over again. And yet the stains remain and continue to haunt her. And maybe that's where you are this morning. You've tried everything imaginable to deal with the stain of your sin and the guilt of your conscience. And while you can sometimes drown it out, you cannot fix the problem. And somewhere along the way, you you heard the gospel message and you thought to yourself, boy, that sounds ridiculous. You're asking me to trust in a lowly carpenter from a despised town who died on a cross and by doing that my sins will be washed away and I'll be welcomed into heaven when I die that's absurd a person would have to be a fool to believe that yeah 1 Corinthians 1 18 says exactly that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are saved it is the power of God Dipping himself seven times in the dirty Jordan River seemed like foolishness to Naaman. But when he humbled himself and did it, and he came up that seventh time, not only was his leprosy gone, but his skin was renewed like the, the skin of a little boy. Putting your faith in a man who died on a cross may sound like foolishness to you. But people all over this auditorium, people all around the world can bear witness to the fact that the instant you do it, your sin will be gone forever and you'll be made new. But I just want to tell you straight, it's going to require that you humble yourself. It's going to require that you get down off your high horse and you humble yourself and admit that there's nothing you can do to contribute one tiny bit to your salvation. And I know that offends a lot of people. You might say, are you telling me that all my morality, all my donations to charities, all the Sundays I sat in church growing up, are you telling me none of that is gonna bring me salvation? Yes, ma'am, yes, sir. That's what I'm telling you. See, Naaman rocked up with $4 million worth of payment, thinking he could buy the cure for his disease found out his money is worthless because there's nothing we can do there's no amount we can pay in order to get ourselves clean from sin and be accepted into heaven there's nothing when Naaman was finally humbled he got it what did Naaman take into that river his leprosy All the gold and silver that represented the pride and status of his lifelong achievements, it all sat up there in the chariots. It was of no value whatsoever to his cleansing. And so, too, when you come to Christ for cleansing and salvation, you must come empty-handed, bringing nothing but your sin, leaving all your grand accomplishments and achievements and accumulations up there on the bank. Relying solely upon his grace and mercy to save you. That takes humbling. I love the words of that old song. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Vile I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the gospel. And it's the only way to be free from the guilt And the judgment of your sin. So can I ask you this morning as we close. can, Can I just ask you directly. Have you ever come to the Jordan as it were? Have you left your pride and your ego up on the road. And plunged yourself beneath the cleansing flow of Calvary. Say how does this work? Well Jesus paid for your sin with his own blood so that you could be cleansed from the guilt of sin, and so that you could be freed from the judgment that is to come. There is judgment coming. But you don't have to face it. The Bible tells us there is therefore now no condemnation. To whom? To those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in him today? The Bible says that if we are, we'll be freed from the wrath to come. (laughs) If that verse doesn't give you chills, I can't help you. You hear that? Freed from the wrath to come. Anybody brave enough to face the wrath of God? Say, "Eh, I'll just do this my own way. It's not going to go well. If you're still trying to find cleansing on your own, if you're still trying to find a solution for your heart's condition on your own, I invite you today to accept the gift that God is offering you through his son, I invite you to take a step down, humble yourself and say, "I, I recognize there's only one way to be saved. And that's through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I come today and I throw myself upon your mercy. I come to the cross and I receive the forgiveness and eternal life that he's already paid for. You just have to receive it. How do you do that? You believe That Jesus died for your sin. You believe that he rose again from the grave and you confess him as Lord. Oh, I urge you this morning. You know, you may be sitting here looking at your watch thinking, man, I got plans. You know, let's move this thing along. Listen, I urge you to pause all of that for just a moment. You have an opportunity. This has nothing to do with me. God is giving you one more opportunity right now. Right now. To say, man, I've been playing church. I've been doing the religious thing my whole life. I got it down so good, people don't even know. I've been doing it my own way. I've never humbled myself. I've never become broken over my sin and my lostness. The wrath that is to come has never shaken me to the core. But today, before I walk out of this building, today, I want to come and I want to kneel before the cross so that I can be washed clean. That's you today. I pray you will take that step. As we sing a few closing songs, I'll be at the back. I invite you to come and speak to me then or after the service or to anyone here. We'll be glad to help point you to the way of cleansing. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him.